Hey everyone, you're listening to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance with me, Vicki Abugalium. And me, Jordan Mays. Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled Queer Against Civilization. This week we want to talk about queerness and its intersection with environmentalism. Yes. Happy Pride Month to everyone celebrating except homophobes. Uh, We don't fuck with you. We don't have any content warnings for this week, friends, but we would also like to acknowledge um, in some of the text quotes that we use in this episode, we updated some of the language around identity um, to be, I guess, more appropriate for our conversation, such as like the use of the word Indian to switch with the use of the word natives. And today we're also very happy to be joined by two guests, August Taylor and Prince Shakur. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, I'm August, and my pronouns are they, them, and he, him. My name is Prince Shakur. I use he, him pronouns. So the land that we are occupying is the ancestral and contemporary land of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. It is necessary for those of us whose ancestors were not brought to this land in chains to reflect upon our unearned privilege from the history of genocide and land theft perpetuated by generations of aggressive settlement and ongoing systemic structural genocide. We must recognize that no society can ever have an ethical relationship to the place it stole, especially when the land was cultivated from stolen bodies and labor of indigenous Africans turned property. The undermining of indigenous cultures around the globe by white settlers has warped our conceptions of self and personhood and subsequently degendered the bodies exploited on a mass scale. This erasure of those who don't fit into the binary has led to the loss of ancestral knowledge we now see as queer, but has been central to communal thought for ages through a variety of indigenous cultures and contexts. We hope to regain and recenter the knowledge of two-spirit, trans, and non-binary folk around the globe to bolster our ways of life and find a personal and shared cultures of being. With that, let's start our show. So today I want to talk a lot about intersectionality and curiarchy. Curiarchy is a social system or set of connecting social systems built around domination, oppression, and submission. Coming out of feminist schools of thought, this framework allows us to look at our culture of domination from the start of many civilizations with centralized governing structures, also known as the state. This framework allows for some context to examining practices of domination that take place in patriarchal social systems and how those systems of domination have been applied to the non-human world which is not separate from the human world. I'd first like to bring the connection of domestication and its importance to state and civilization building as a narrative process as well as an authoritarian one. The project of domestication stems from humans breeding fauna and flora around us for the purpose of submission and exploitive production. I say exploitive production because treating animals as a natural resource to extract protein has been a key goal of the project of raising livestock. This is not a condemnation of all animal usage, but especially in Anglo-Euro societies that are like the settler colonial American experiment itself. It has been essential to maintaining the social and political structures of patriarchal domination. You can see it in the so-called societies of liberty and democracy that the U.S. government likes to use as inspiration, like the mythologized Roman Empire is the USA's prime example of the city-state structure. 
We see animal captivation and subjugation to feed large armies of newly centralized powers and populations being formed around the project of cultivating such civilization. These ideas of civilization as a project to strive for have been ideologically authoritarian since the beginning and work on the same logic as fascists, othering those who don't follow the imposition of morality or social interaction. The art collective Tangled Wilderness's essay, Take What You Need and Compost the Rest, an intro to post-civilization theory, analyzed the project as such. Quote, Civilization has been defined in all sorts of ways, but none of them actually make it sound very good when you think much about it. My dictionary defines civilization as, quote, the stage of human social development and organization that is considered most advanced, end quote. Aside from being some sort of useless definition, this points out the prejudice inherent to in civilization. It says, we are advanced. You are primitive. What's more, history and development are purely linear in nature. Progress only moves forward, and any deviation from the course we are on is regressive. Another working definition of civilization can be derived from Wikipedia, which often provides a sort of cultural consensus on a given term. Wikipedia describes civilization as a, quote, society defined by a complex society characterized by the practice of agriculture and settlement in cities. Compared with less complex structures, members of a civilization are organized in a diverse division of labor in an intricate social hierarchy, end quote. This definition, too, points out the flaws in civilization. An inherent social hierarchy? Why have we all chosen a world that puts up with that kind of crap? Derek Jensen, an anti-civilization theorist, but not a post-civilized one, has proposed another useful definition of civilization. Quote, A culture that is a complex of stories, institutions, and artifacts that both leads to and emerges from the growth of cities. Civilization uh, comes from the word civil, civis, meaning citizen, from the latis civitatis, meaning city-state. Which, of course, leads us to ask what exactly is a city? Derek defines a city for the purpose of his definition of civilization as, quote, people living more or less permanently in one place and densities high enough to require the routine importation of food and other necessities of life, end quote. And that, perhaps, is the point of all this. If a place requires resources from elsewhere, everything is fine when they can trade for them. But when their farming neighbors experience a drought and can't provide a surplus for trade, then you have war, end quote. To exist only to trade is to commodify the other societies that don't behave like yours. To acknowledge differences and only tolerate them as so they benefit your own existence breeds hatred. This sort of social relation breaks down confederations of trust and solidarity that are truly mutually beneficial and serve only to bolster hierarchies that attempt to make themselves permanent in our lives. Some of these hierarchies, such as patriarchy, have had such a long-standing impact on our culture, we see the implications of it everywhere in our relations, to each other, to the natural world, and to our labor. This link is especially strong when we talk about how the concepts of domestication blend with the goals of those pursuing power, historically patriarchs pursuing political power. When they place barriers on freedoms of movement, on those who don't fit into the binaries they imposed on gender identity and sexual relationships, and even on those who they claim to love and protect. The pursuit of patriarchal power inside and outside the household is key to maintaining such power structures and keeping divisions of labor and communication alive. This is seen in the mainstream conservation movement 
and its anthropocentric nature. We see this in the restriction of sexual relations and gender identity, and this is highly an influential reason for the creation of borders and city-states to modern nation-states that restrict movements between nations based on top-down cultures. So when these highly patriarchal societies came to Turtle Island, their project of erasure of queer voices and lives was in full swing. The author Arthur Evans wrote in the book Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture that, quote, when the early European colonists arrived in North America, they did not come upon a vacant land. Instead, they found a multitude of nature people who had lived there for ages on end. These native people had developed some of the highest cultures in recorded history. They lived long, full, healthy lives. Their societies had little hierarchy and no government superstructure. Organized warfare in the modern sense was rare or unknown. Labor was free, women generally enjoyed a high status, and gay persons of both sexes were regarded with religious awe. They developed beautiful arts and crafts in which nearly everyone was skilled. They managed to satisfy all the basic needs of human existence with much grace and beauty, and were able to do so without the curse of cities, police, mental institutions, or universities. Although personal violence was known among them, it paled in comparison to the level of violence in any Western society during the past 2,000 years. The natives loved nature and knew how to talk to plants and animals whom they regarded as their equals. They were able to feel, and not just know, that everything is lives. Onto the scene came the industrializing whites, burdened and propelled by over 2,000 years of patriarchal institutions. The whites denounced the natives as, quote, primitive, savage, or, or barbarian. They accused them of worshiping devils and ridiculed their gay shamans. They taught them how to practice organized warfare. They plied them into violence against each other, stole their land, and succeeded in killing off nearly every one of them, quarantining their survivors in concentration camps called reservations. The white's genocide against the natives affects how the whites thought about sex. They came to view sex as an instrument of imperial policy. For them, the purpose of sex was to breed as large a number of people as possible in order to push aside the relatively low-density native population and the population of colonists from other European nations. Colonial leaders eagerly looked forward to the day when fast-breeding white Americans would force their way over the whole Western Hemisphere, both North and South. In 1751, Benjamin Franklin published in his Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind. In it, he urged Americans to breed rapidly in order to take over the new lands. And he called upon the British government to forcibly displace the natives to make room for the growing number of rapidly breeding Americans, end quote. This narrative of sexual immorality based on colonial logic has poisoned the way that BIPOC communities view each other in and outside of our communities. This division was enhanced in the face of government repression so that our ancestors could survive by assimilating, but it has led to the destruction of communal history and social structures that keep our communities intact in the first place. This erasure is manifested in the form of historical homogenization and assimilation. The nonstop oppression, murder, and burial of non-binary voices is done by the mass grouping of colonial writers and historians to overlook what either confused or disgusted them. The structural denial of queer fluidity and spatial presence historically is poison, and the assimilation is the continuation of the silence and the purposeful hiding of these sectors of our communities. In Leanne Simpson's book, As We Have Always Done, we see Simpson meditate on their own lived experience and those of other indigenous authors as such. Quote, Alex Wilson has been working on this issue for decades now, from within her own Cree-grounded normativity. She is from Opaskwayak Cree Nation in Manitoba, a community that normalized queerness when she was growing up. She writes, 
In my community, the act of declaring some people special threatens to separate them from their community and creates an imbalance. Traditionally, two-spirit people were simply a part of the entire community. As we reclaim our identity with this name, we're returning to our communities, end quote. Over the years, what I've asked different Anishinaabeg elders about queerness they often say that we didn't have that. Then when I ask if two women ever lived together intimately without men, they'll remember stories of queer couples, not as queer people, but just people who lived like that, as something that wasn't a big deal, as if it were a normal, inconsequential part of life. What these elders and Alex are describing is a gender variance that existed in many indigenous communities prior to the strategic implanting of the colonial gender binary. This imposed an artificial gender binary as a mechanism for controlling indigenous bodies and identity and sets out two very clear genders, male and female. It lays out two sets of rigidly defined roles based on colonial conceptions of femininity and masculinity. It then places colonial concepts of maleness and masculinity as more important than female and femininity and erases any variance. This is what heteropatriarchy needs to operate. And the more that heterosexual cisgender native men and women buy into the hierarchy and choose to reproduce and enforce violence, exclusion, and erasure, the better it works to divide and destroy the fabric of relationships that make up our nations. Heteropatriarchy isn't just about exclusion of certain indigenous bodies. It is about the destruction of the intimate relationships that make up our nations and the fundamental systems of ethics based on values of individual sovereignty and self-determination. The more destruction our intimate relationships carry, the more destruction our political systems carry, and the less we're able to defend and protect our lands, and the easier it is to dispossess." End quote. Going back to your hierarchical analysis, we can examine how these heteropatriarchal social systems are used to institute a sense of division and make us defenseless against imperial forces and erode our own sense of identity. In killing this communal and individual identity, we lose a sense of connection to each other and to the spirit of life that surrounds us. The dispossession of our history is vital to the state building plaguing Turtle Island, and our intimate connection to each other and to the land is our intimate resistance. So this episode is about queerness and the environmental movement, and I feel like an easy way to connect this topic to our show is just asking the question of like, why is this important to address? And Jordan already made it pretty clear why it's important. Let's refer to like the past episodes we've done. So we defined environmental justice as the principle that all people and communities have the right to not be exposed to environmental harms or toxins. This is a right to all humans, regardless of race, class, or other social identities that keep folks in the margins, like gender and sexuality. I would maybe extend that definition again to go past freedom from harm towards the right to have access to environmental benefits, a concept that's now taking shape in the critical environmental justice literature. But when we consider those who are experiencing environmental harm, it immediately positions race, class, gender, and sexuality into the forefront of the conversation. We know that those who are disproportionately harmed by environmental injustice are non-white. This is also known as environmental racism. It also follows that those who are disproportionately harmed are not heterosexual or gender conforming. Why? Um, because, as we've made very clear, this is all connected. Intersectionality lets us know that there are layers of interlocking oppressions, um, as defined by the Combahee River Collective, that still ring true. And I think the easiest way of thinking about this is in terms of access to wealth, 
which also often means access to natural space and non-polluted space. I mean, I've definitely lived in some apartments that were not safe for me because I could afford the rent there. And people who are wealthy enough to avoid being exposed to harm are on average not POC and not queer. But being oppressed and marginalized is not the only reason that queerness matters in the environmental movement. Our joy matters and our ideas matter too. And this is actually something that's come up a lot in my dissertation research. But as our guest August explains, queerness matters in environmental contexts inherently because queerness and queer people exist. If you got the, the definition of, of queer ecology being like queer as a disruption, then I see a lot of queerness in, in the spaces that I'm in when it's not necessarily like just me or, you know, the person's doesn't identify as being queer if if queering can mean disrupting you know how we think about ownership and bringing things home and lineage then I I I think those are that's where I see it a lot and also it's a queer space because I'm queer so what is queer ecology queer ecology according to Catriona Mortimer Sandilands a scholar often credited with developing the literature in this area refers to ways of disrupting heterosexist discourse around sexuality and nature as Jordan explained we can attribute a lot of the violence and erasure of people to the heteropatriarchy to this need for domination that settlers created We can then extend this to the present day reality of the climate crisis. The ideas of dominion over nature, of an endless amount of resources to extract from nature's bounty, of a lack of responsibility to steward the earth, these ideas come from a settler colonial Anglo-American heteropatriarchal logic, which insists on the subjugation and control over nature, similar to the subjugation and control over gender and race. As we also know, the heteropatriarchy created racial capitalism, which we sort of discussed in an earlier episode. But these are all interwoven into a braid of oppressions as racial capitalism was used to control land and wealth, which creates an endless cycle of toxic pollutants and waste that the so-called United States of America has no intention of dealing with, instead stealing labor from individuals to produce material goods and then pushing off the responsibility for waste management to someone or somewhere else. So the heteropatriarchy is a basis for racial capitalism and climate change. And the queering of environmentalism is a way to push it back against that norm. I wanted a perspective on queer ecology and queer environmentalism that comes from POC. This is less available in academic literature because of those oppressions we've discussed and how they restrict access to higher education or legitimacy in academia which might slowly be changing, hence my existence. But as it stands, it's still sparse. So I turned to the internet. I came across an environmentalist named Isaiah Hernandez, uh, also known as Queer Brown Vegan, who works with intersectional environmentalists. And they actually featured Isaiah in a short interview about queer environmentalism that I wanted to share. That dismantling white supremacy that is rooted in toxic masculinity Mm. is environmentalism because we are challenging these types of notions and rhetorics that have been instilled and ingrained in us, similar to themes of overconsumption that we don't necessarily think about these things, mm-hmm. but we don't. Um, we need to continue challenging ourselves to delve deeper than what we think is gay and what, what, what isn't gay. 
I also came across some Filipino queer environmentalists in my search, of course, because I always search for Fil Filipino presence whenever I study anything. Actually, the Philippines is like one of the most gay Asian countries, but I came across a person named Joshua um, with no last name identified, but it was featured in Greenpeace. And I wanted to share a quote of theirs from this article. Joshua states, quote, as all movements start from scratch, there will always be haters, deniers, and apathetic people who will judge and comment negatively on the movement. But as long as we know to ourselves that what we fight for is right, we should not back down, end quote. But to really get a POC perspective on queer environmentalism, Jordan and I thought, let's just ask our queer BIPOC environmentalist friends <laughs> because we are here and we exist. So that's gonna be our interview today with August and Prince. So, well, thank you both for joining us today for our episode about queerness and environmentalism. Um, we've been super excited to record this episode, like since we started planning for the show, because um, I think it's something that we at this table all relate to. But before we get into that, I just wanted to open up our conversation by asking if you could each tell us a bit about yourselves, maybe in like relation to this topic specifically. Um, so I don't know if... August, you want to go first or Prince, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so like I said, my name is August. I am a community gardener at a public uh, box park. It is the Maroon Arts Group MPAC box park. It's in Bronzeville. Uh, I'll shout it out. It's on the corner of 17th and Mount Vernon, and I manage the garden there. Beautiful. And my name is Prince Shakur. Um, I... In terms of environmental work, I um, I guess most notably, I went to Standing Rock in 2016 for about a month and a half, and I got to experience the movement there. I went there during three different trips. Um, I've done some like follow-up Standing Rock environmental work. Um, there was a lockdown action in Columbus that I was a part of. I've gone to various gatherings, whether it's Earth First or other sort of more anarchist-oriented gatherings or, um, in different parts of the country where people talked about environmental work. Um, and I also do freelance journalism, so I've written quite a bit for Patagonia about the youth climate strike that happened a few years ago. Um, and I've just written like a few environmental pieces here and there. Um, but of course, like any time that I can support anything organizing-wise on an environmental level, I try to. Amazing. You're both so cool. I'm so excited. Um, Jordan, do you want to get into it? How does being queer and black help you contextualize other oppressive force, especially when how you contextualize yourself before you came to terms with yourself? Um, I mean, I guess I'll start. Um, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that being someone that's traveled a lot in my 20s, I'm 27 now. Um, I think being queer from being a teenager taught me that you have to be adaptable when you're out in the world and you yeah. have to try to find your family wherever you are, whether it's friends or chosen family. And so I feel like in so many different environments uh, where I've been uncomfortable or I haven't felt safe, I'll sometimes search for that family. And sometimes that search goes wrong mm. because that family is shit. And sometimes it's not. Um and, 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 and I think that's just like a big lesson because I think especially in organizing spaces, you show up and you expect people 
because they share a similar ideological or a political tag as you, you expect to have affinity. But even within those spaces, being black or queer um, has made has caused people to or it's led other people to otherize me. And so I think it's just kind of taught me to always be on my toes, always to be searching for family Mm. and to always be searching for a new language to describe the experiences of microaggressions or oppression or being tokenized or otherized in movements. Um, Like a notable example is when I was in Standing Rock, it was maybe my second time there. I, around that time, I was wearing a lot of political propaganda and I had this <laughs> jacket that said fuck white America on the back. And I just, I had it for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I just basically wanted to piss people off. And I wore it to Standing Rock and I was like, oh, these are my people. Like they're going to understand. Didn't understand. No. Uh, there was one day there where I was on Facebook Hill, which is just the hill where you <clears throat> can find cell phone signal there. And, um, and, and an older indigenous man came up to me and he said, Hey, come over here. Talk to me for a second. And I was like, oh, who are you? <laughs> and he just said, oh, like, I noticed what you were wearing. And I just need to be really clear with you. Um, various elders in this movement um, are aware of this jacket that you're wearing. And oh. it doesn't align with the messaging of this movement. It's not about peace. And we're going to ask you to take it off. And I was just like, are you telling me what to wear? And he basically repeated himself and I was just so uncomfortable because my friends were there and then they left and I just kind of tried to walk a few feet away and then that man left and came back with two other people and they both kind of, I mean, it was outside, so it wasn't like cornering me, but they were standing around me in a way that wasn't comfortable. And they were just like, if you wear this again in this space, uh, people will be watching and you will be followed. Um, And I think in terms of being awakened to going into a space and expecting affinity and expecting like, Oh, I'm here as an ally and I'm black. And like, we're, we're brothers and sisters, right? Like it was just a very harsh reality. Like mm-hmm. you can show up to spaces and bring your queerness and bring all the facilities and tools and things that queerness can, it helps you be more alive and be more closer to radicalism and the root of fighting these things. And people right. will still say, fuck that queer shit. <sighs> um, so that's just one example. Yeah. I'm sorry that that happened to you. I feel like that's something that's, at least in my experience, being talked about more now. Yeah, I can't speak directly to that experience. Um, I will speak to the environmental spaces, mm-hmm. is what we call them, that I'm in right now, uh, which are mostly community gardens. Um, they're mostly stewarded by older black women, is usually who I find mm-hmm. myself gardening with. There's a few more young folks now, but it's mostly older people. Um, and in those spaces, I've always been allowed to be really black, obviously, but also really queer. Uh, And originally that surprised me, especially because a lot of the older women that I work with um, are deeply religious and I really respect that. But I, of course, then I worry, you know, maybe that that's not going to be accepted, but that was just never the case. So it was really, um, I felt lucky. I felt blessed to always be able to be my full self in these spaces. And I feel like that just reminds me of how much I, I love I love doing what I do because I I get to do it with black people. And I guess with the question of how how does it make me contextualize, really, it just reminds me of why this is the only thing I would want to be doing. You know, why would I want to be community gardening with a bunch of white people when that's not my community? So Mm. I just I become more appreciative 
Are there ways that, like, in these environmental spaces that you've seen yourself represented or not represented? Um, and how does it help you, like, navigate environmentalism or how you see it? Like, have you ever found yourself shrinking or assimilating or conforming? Or growing in also, like, in the other direction, too. I wouldn't say I find myself, like, making myself smaller, but I I do work with the USDA pretty often um, in my day job, which is a, it's a wonderful uh support that we offer in other ways and it's really hard to be working with the USDA when it's just so public about how there's been years of discrimination mm-hmm. and racism and we know the whole nine yards so of course I'm not quite represented in the USDA though they they claim to be trying I wouldn't say that I don't care because there's a lot of a lot of people's well-being tied to the USDA mm-hmm. you know getting their shit together I can't say that I I can be apathetic to it, but I, I prefer to direct my energy to the places that I am am represented. Um, and I'd say for me, uh, ooh, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like in general, when I go to any far leftist spaces or organizing things that aren't literally for black people, I'm usually like one of four <laughs> black people in those spaces. Like, yeah. I don't know. I remember in Standing Rock, like I would always look around and like, I think I saw a few like black folks that were like non-binary and trans and queer and like a few black women. But I literally, I think I saw one black man Mm. the whole month I was there. And that was a guy that was a chef and wanted to give food to the police officer. I still haven't really fully experienced like a black queer like uh, environmental, like radical action oriented mm-hmm. space. And I feel like it is something that I kind of crave and hunger for. Like I have comrades that do or participate in different land trusts or land projects or spaces that um, like they offer space to organizers and people that are actively trying to heal. And I think those are the kind of projects that I kind of want to be somewhat oriented towards in the future. But I've always felt like a big absence um, outside of like the bits of journalism I've done about like how black folk are specifically impacted by um, like coal factories or in Cancer Alley or things like that. But I've always felt kind of like, well, let me look under this table because there might be two of us here and maybe there's another one under the table. (laughs) I think I show up to a lot of those spaces understanding that as one of the few people there, I either have a choice to speak up about things that make me uncomfortable. Like just to give an example, I won't say what the org was, but I went to like a gathering for like environmentalists um, like down South and it's a very well-known leftist environmental group. I won't say who they are, um, but I went to their gathering and I think there were like 120 people there and I was one of three black people. And I mean of like BIPOC people, I think I was one of like, 20 or 30 and Mm -hmm. compared to this organization's history that was an improvement and granted because there were other people of color and BIPOC people there I kind of like went off to the side with them and smoked a lot of weed and like talked about just like the isms that we saw in that Mm -hmm. space and I think in that space because I had that pocket of safety like I felt empowered in a certain way but there's definitely been other environmental spaces where I, I I feel like I'm a person where since I'm cis and queer like I being cis, I definitely try to show up and like kind of, I don't know, not take up too much space in a certain way anyway, because I 
don't want to take away from what other people are going to be offered in that space. And so I feel like, I don't know, I don't want to say if that's like a double consciousness thing and if it always makes sense, but that's just kind of how I naturally operate. And then if the space is especially not BIPOC oriented, I'm usually just like, well, let's see how long until some bullshit happens here. It's kind of how (laughs) I feel. So I think in a way that is kind of making myself smaller because I don't necessarily participate in the way that the most energized and realized version of myself would be. But do you always have to show up like that? It's a no, lot. but, but I think it's, to me, it's like an, it's an, it's like an ally thing that I mm. feel sometimes, especially in spaces that aren't oriented or don't represent a lot of my identities. I usually think like, Oh, I'm here as an ally. And like, I gotta like be respectful. And so I think sometimes I conflate that with feeling like I'm making myself small. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's a difficult thing to kind of explain. Yeah. I would talk when I talk about the spaces in the community garden, they usually end up being like rather like not rather positive stories, but they usually are like more affirming um, than being in, you know, like an, an like you said, action oriented space. Because yeah. uh, I, I can de- I definitely feel you being in the like the, the climate movement, you know, yeah. big C, big M type of thing. There's usually mostly white people um, and it's pretty white queer you know heavy too I would say so the, the queerness is represented but the the black queer and the, the other queer people of color not so much but in in the community garden space we're we're really well represented so uh when I when I'm taking up the space I feel like I can take it up even more or it reminds me that I whenever I feel like I'm putting on a performance that I can just kind of tone it down because I don't have to be someone or like feel like I need to do something or be someone that I'm not. I can just let myself be comfortable because these people like understand understand me, you know, or I feel like they would. That is such an interesting like distinction between kind of like action, like outward facing almost, and then like the spaces of like rest that we create in the movement. Yeah, because I mean, because I think in a certain way, like, I don't know, it's like the whole thing of like environmentalism, that's some white people shit. Mm-hmm. And then it's like mm-hmm. you combine that with like these seemingly hyper militant actions and I don't know I I, I guess I I don't know and I feel like going to this interview I was kind of nervous because I was trying to think I was I was like what are my deep connections to the environment on like a personal level and I keep thinking that question I think for me it's either like my summers in Jamaica or feeling the lack of environment or environmentalism or ecology growing up in Cleveland and so it's kind of like I don't know I think a lot about like how do I, as someone that grew up in an urban environment, find these ways to connect with and find out how I can participate politically when it comes to the environment? And I feel like, I don't know, I feel feel like that's just like a question that I think of a lot and I have a lot of, I have a lot of need around. Mm. Um, So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, August. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of black people's relationship with the environment can be kind of mundane you know, it's not saying it's not profound, but it's really, you know, it's sitting on your porch, it's landscaping, you know, your aunt that grows strawberries every year or something like that. Like it doesn't have to be something super formal or even it doesn't seem like very overtly environmental, but uh, yeah, it's it's something that you always see. So, it, you know, it's not formally passed on, but you still see everybody's, you know, grandpa sitting on the porch yeah. with their potted flowers, just watching the day go by. 
I'm going to make it heavy again. So. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, so how has being BIPOC and queer help you? This is kind of like the first question, but kind of jumping off of it, help you understand like patterns of domination, like forms and structures and like the cultures, um, either like Western cultures or like colonial structures that have like inflicted or have been inflicted against the environment. Like you were talking about how our cities are made in certain ways and on certain sides of the cities especially have impacted how we have our relationship to the environment around us or what we see as the environment around us? I can definitely speak to one of those harms. So like I said, my day job, a a lot of it, you know, I I don't just directly work with the USDA every day, but, you know, a lot of our work, you know, is funded by, is oriented to, is mandated by the USDA. Um, And everything that comes from the like federal government about agriculture, especially sustainable agriculture, is co-opted, which we know. But you know, mm-hmm. I see organic, they talk about permaculture, biodynamics, there's just regenerative, and there's just so many different names for what black people already know how to do. And you know, now they have certified organic, so you have to pay to prove that you can do these practices when people have just already been doing them for generations. So I guess that's a way that I would see, you know, the, the, the destruction. Sure, it's a destruction physically because their, their orientation towards this means that there, were, there was a long time where there was a different type of agriculture that was Absolutely. pushed. Urban agriculture, as what, what's been very presented, is kind of a trend, but it's about the, the corporate. The question is how being BIPOC and queer is affected, like how we confront or understand, like, these forces of colonialism and westernism yeah like in environment yeah in the environment naturally i thought to my family immigrating to the u.s in the late 70s and how in some part of me i have a lot of thoughts about how assimilating to uh, u.s culture has separated my family from a lot of the practices Mm -hmm. that they had growing up and granted that was being really really poor in jamaica post-independence my mother had six or seven siblings they raised chickens sold them raised other animals sold them would pick things from the bush behind their house and use that to do like cleanses before school um i had a lot of uncles that either were like were in rastafarianism during different parts of their life um and so i think on one level whenever i go back to jamaica i definitely it's this comfort slash I don't want to say discomfort because it, it puts me back in, into my childhood self, but I don't actively practice like healthy eating habits or like, I don't know, like the sense of environmentalism that my family in Jamaica has. And so whenever I go back, I feel like there's some part of me that says like, oh, I want to spend more time here to understand like how my uncle like picks the mint and the mm-hmm. other herbs from his backyard and uses that for our tea or our lunch or or like understand more about Rastafarianism in, in like a modern sense and the complexities behind it and how that is like a sort of countercultural space. Mm-hmm. But I think on an, on another level, um, I mean, in terms of like growing up in Cleveland and growing up in an urban environment, I mean, I, I look back at my childhood and I view, and maybe this is kind of like a weird connection in some ways, but I view the parts of my childhood where like I was being told that I was like a smart black kid or like one of the better ones or whatever, like basically being told I was a part of the talented 10th, the ways that 
that kind of showed up to me in certain ways was going to programs in predominantly white or more rural spaces where people that go to private schools or attend like more expensive private institutions. Um, like I, I, just to, like to give two examples, when I was in middle school, I went to a three summer long program um, in Pepper Pike, Ohio at university school. And it's this beautiful high school campus, huge lake, pond, pool, all these things that I never had in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I remember going there like at age 11, 12, 13 and thinking like, if this is offered to these people, like what does this say about what is being invested in them and what their quality, what, what kind of quality of life do these people deserve as opposed to me? Um, and I think that was like a big realization at that age when they had us like, kayaking in ponds and going on hikes. And I was like, I never done nothing like this. Um, and then I think on another level, when I was in high school, I went to a two week writer's workshop and that was in Gambier, Ohio. And I went there on scholarship and everyone else there was white and had come from all around the country. And it was just like in a more rural space. And I remember my mother dropping me off and being like, be careful around these white people. Um, and so I think on like a, on a, maybe like a socio-political level, I see, the ways that engaging with the environment in these sort of spaces of assimilation, how that can be a tool that is weaponized against like younger black people or not even younger black people and how that is kind of like a, it's something to struggle against because even when I was like in college and I worked at a ski resort in Montana and I worked at a resort in Yellowstone, like there were many instances where the white people around me felt super comfortable doing certain things in those spaces. And I was thinking like, I'm black. I'm not trying to be chased down by a park ranger because they're smoking weed in this little mm -hmm. area behind our dorm. And so I, I think it's just like a bigger question to me sometimes of like, how do I re-navigate that relationship with the environment? And what does that look like to, to steal that relationship back? And maybe a part of that is like my interest in land trusts and land projects and kind of recontextualizing what rural spaces mean to black people. Um, but I think on like a, a, a deeper, like on a more urban level, like I was a part of a program in high school where we had to reimagine a part of a Cleveland neighborhood. And a lot of that was like imagining green spaces, spaces that like black people in urban environments, how they could actually enjoy the outdoors and how the outdoors didn't need to be a space where they were policed or relegated to certain areas of the city. Wow. Yeah. I gotta wanna, say, okay. yeah, that's. I mean, we know that the environment is a very public place and the outdoors is not always a, a safe place to be as a black person. So, you know, whenever you, you ask or you think, you know, what, what's a black person's relationship to the outdoors and you think it's probably not going to be a good one or something. Well, number one, that's not always true. But number two, you know, it makes sense. You know, I might be afraid to be gardening outdoors at night, even if there's a bunch of lights around me or something. Um, one time I was in a, a community garden, it was behind a church and I was gardening and a cop was walking up and I was, it was a black cop, but you know, he's the cop and I was so scared. He was just saying hi. Turns out he's like a member of the congregation. I didn't know he was in uniform. <laughs> right, 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 it terrified the right. shit oh, out yeah. of me. Oh man. He was just a, he was a, a friend of, of the garden basically, but it, you know, it's a cop. What, what was I supposed I've, to think? So I've had a cop pull up on me while at the box park Ugh. taking like taking food 
Yeah. And just being like, so what are you doing? Are you with the school? And I'm like, no. You're like, no, I'm So then what are you doing here? I'm like, I live around here. It's a public park. park. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point. So in this episode, um, we discuss queer ecology and like the queering of environmentalism um, being defined as like a disruption of the heteronormative discourse around nature. So I'm just wondering if like you both could comment on that or like ways that that's practice or your understanding of like how as a queer person do you practice like the, the disruption of this discourse of like we kind of were just talking about it a little bit of um you can take it out of showing up in environmental spaces or just in your relationship with the natural world in general well if you got the the definition of of queer ecology being like queer is a disruption uh, then you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> then I see a lot of queerness in in the spaces that I'm in when it's not necessarily like just me or you know the person's doesn't identify as being queer. Um, but you said disrupts the heteronormative discourse. Discourse. <laughs> Everything is discourse, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I one thing that immediately comes to mind is um, there's a, a practice. Uh, called rematriation, um, mm. especially the rematriation of of seeds, and uh, a lot of communities use rematriation because the the common term is what repatriation. I don't even know the word because I don't say it. So <laughs> it you know it's basically like you know passing on from the patriarch versus patch- passing on from the matriarch. So the um, like the, with plants, right? With, and especially with seeds. So th- you know there's a lot of seed breeding and seed research, and I don't even know the half of it, but. Uh, a lot of indigenous seeds are kept and stored and, you know, basically taken. And so rematriation is the process of bringing these seeds home, mm-hmm. basically. And so that, that's why they call it that, because they're, you know, they're honoring, you know, the mother in all of this. Also, I, I think that a lot of people that I work with say that they steward the land. No one says they own the land. You know, no one says this land is mine. Most of the black people I talk to when I when I ask them about their goals, it always includes educating their community in mm-hmm. some way or they want to teach someone or they want to you know, build up the next generation of people. You know, it's not I want to grow my business. You know, I want to scale up. I mean, sure, they want to scale up so that they can you know, help their communities mm-hmm. more. The last thing I'll say on this, because it's it's related to that, is I. I remember uh, reading a it was a quote, and I'm not going to say the quote because I will I will butcher it, um, and maybe I'll find the book for you afterwards because I also don't remember the book. Yeah, but they so were we talking post about it. Yeah, they were talking about competition and you know how a lot of we'll say like you know anti capitalists are you know anti competition you know, mm-hmm. um, but they were talking about it was it was an observation from an indigenous group and. They weren't devoid of competition, um, but their competition had different purposes. So they were they were competing to have more resources so they would have more to give to their communities. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's just what I feel like I see is people, you know, if people want to scale up, if people want to win, so to speak, it's because they want to be able to provide more food for their mm. communities. So um, if, if queering can mean disrupting, you know, how we think about ownership and bringing things home and lineage, then I, I, mm. I think those are, that, that's where I see it a lot. Yes. And also it's a queer space because I'm queer. Yes. So. <laughs> mm. I mean, I don't have much to input on this question, but um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is uh, 
Uh, I've been grieving and a simple way that I've kind of been connecting with the environment and I've been trying to find out how I can write about it more, but it's just like, I look up at the trees, I go outside and I look at the trees swaying Mm. and I practice breathing. Um, and it reminds me of my friend that passed away. Um, and I think in the simplest terms doing that, um, it's really simple to me, but it's allowing me to recontextualize my relationship with the environment through what I believe about reincarnation mm. or death or people passing. Um, and I think that there are various points in my life where things in the environment kind of represent things to me or people that have passed or lineage. And so, I don't know, maybe it's just in my body, but that's just been something I've been trying to hold and to honor and to just think about moving forward body work breath work and how that just like kind of allows me to recenter myself and to not kind of be consumed by all of the evils and things around me and so I think in some way uh, for me it's like mimicking nature allows me to be more present in my body in whatever ways that looks like um, is kind of my interpretation yeah that was beautiful thank you for sharing that Mimicking nature because we are nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What ways do you all see that we need to be centering queer and black experiences and environmentalists as we take action in environmental spaces? Because you, you all have seen like some representation, but this kind of goes to the question of like, where are we? I, you know, ask them what they want, ask them what they need, you know, or, you know, don't frame it as what they don't have. Ask them what their goals are. You know, ask them what challenges they've been facing. You know, ask ask them something that makes makes them feel like you care about what they're going to say. Um, you know, the I feel like the whole point of liberation movement movements for Black people, Black queer people, is for for us to enjoy our lives. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame someone for not showing up to a protest if they're just trying to you know enjoy their Black queer lives. Um, but if 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 for something that you're doing, you really you know, need to have more people there, more experiences there, more stories there, um, and you need these people to show up, then you have to you have to make it relatable. It's not always relatable to every black queer person, mm-hmm. especially if they're not usually involved in these types of action oriented movements. So I guess it depends on who you're who you're organizing. Um I I guess I just immediately think about what would black and queer and trans spaces look like if we continue to fight to redistribute resources and wealth. Um, And I think that to me looks like distancing ourselves away from the state um, because I think the state allows corporations and these institutions and these entities to constantly strip the environment, pollute, um, poison people. And what would our world look like if we not only began to redistribute resources and distance ourselves away from the state, but how would that affect where black people live? Would we live in urban environments? Would there be a sort of upsurge of black folks moving to more urban or or moving to more rural or just like openly environmental spaces? And I think of like, I don't know, I think of like projects like Cooperation Jackson and like I mentioned before, like other land trust projects. And, um, and I think to your point, August, like, like being able to just live and experience life. And, and, and to me, um, 
to me, it's also like thinking of spaces of refuge and maroonage and how those histories show up. And so I think for me, a lot of it is like trying to understand the way black people have fled and sought out nature and the environment as a means of escape and how that is such like a deep part of black history, of West Indian history, of Jamaican history and how, I don't know, not necessarily that we can go back to the same strategies, but there is something to learn from from the act of divorcing ourselves from the state. And if we can't totally divorce ourselves, how do we build the resources and connections and networks in order to make that option more possible and more plausible for the average person? Because I think in urban environments, there is a lot of like black lineages and black people that tend to stay in like the same city that they grew up in. And what would it look like for the resources in those cities to allow people to go elsewhere and to experience elsewhere? And what are the possibilities of that? Um, And so for me, a lot of it looks like, yeah, like what are the possibilities of, of what would or could happen once those resources are redistributed? Then my next question was going to be about, about art and creativity. Like how does art and creativity influence your relationship with the environment not even necessarily the movement but just like the the environment that we're in i first started working on a farm i had a friend who really liked to you know journal and do all this stuff and i'm not really like a journal or a bullet you know i can't do the cute stuff but i wanted to try and so one of the things that they were doing was like you know drawing what they saw you know it was very you know very in the moment Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, I can't draw, but let me try. Mm-hmm. And because I was looking at what I was drawing, I actually did pretty good. Mm-hmm. I So I know that's not, you know, it's not that deep, but I thought it was pretty cool that suddenly I could kind of start to draw things when I was a little bit closer and I could see them and I, you know, dealt with them a little bit more. As a writer, as someone that's writing a novel right now, setting is a huge way to ground the reader and my character and myself and what I'm writing. Um, And so, I mean, I'm not the most environmentally, I don't be hiking and shit. I just, (laughs) it scares me. But, um, but in terms of like the book that I'm writing now, it's set in the South. Um, A lot of it is about, I don't know. It's it's like, as a writer, I enjoy when you can have a scene that on an emotional level is very dark and sad and intense, but there's an environmental element that brings beauty to that space or illuminates something. And so I think for me, um, on a setting level, like setting can sometimes be a contrast to how I'm operating in a scene. And setting is also a way, like the the literal senses, the the Mm -hmm. sight, smell, sound, scent all of those things are things that I can pick up on based on whatever scene I'm writing and it connects me to my character and it connects the reader to what they're reading and experiencing so essentially paying attention to the environment and the senses um, it allows me to kind of be in the zone and to kind of empathize and embody whatever my character is feeling and also it's like what you notice in a setting or an environment is a reflection of your emotional space or where you're at mentally. And so like maybe you're in love and you notice the way the sunlight is coming through the trees or the bugs that are on the ground or the scent in the air. And I think all of those things um, can be a really heavy vehicle for uh, transporting human emotion. And it, and it, and it can be, I don't know. It, it's basically like a layer through which you see the world and 
you are the person holding the, the, the kind of viewfinder. And so, I don't know, in a lot of ways, like connecting to sight, sound, smell, the flora that might be the envi- in the environment that my character is in, all of those are ways for me to kind of show where they are emotionally. Um, and that, that kind of operates as well on a nonfiction level, but more on a fiction level. Yeah, you both had like very sensory kind of answers to that question. And um, I I really love that. I feel like that's been a thread throughout our interview in a way. Um, And so that like comment on like the self, the body, being in a space um, kind of brings me to the last question, Mm -hmm. which is um, how do you each navigate like burnout and rest? Um, And I guess what does that mean for you um thinking about like the natural environment i know for me like personally it's very important for me to be able to rest in natural spaces for like extended periods of time so i don't know if that kind of helps frame the question a little bit but i think sometimes i surprise myself you know i you know you you know this vicky and jordan (laughs) but every you know thursday we're out in the garden for three Mm -hmm. hours and it's it's wonderful, mm-hmm. and it's every week for you know five six months. And as much as I love gardening, I, you know, facilitating is, yes. you know, it can be tiring. I love you guys, but <laughs> facilitating <laughs> can be tiring. Um, but when I show up, I, I I always leave, and I had a good time. And even if I was tired that day, or I you know I didn't think I wanted to be there, I I always end up having a good time, and it. Yeah, I, I love being I love being surprised and navigating it. I wouldn't say that I I'm not always great with, you know, rest or, you know, saying no to things and all that type of stuff. But I more recently I've just been more constantly asking myself, like, am I enjoying myself? Am I having a good time? How could I enjoy myself more? Um, is is this what I wanna be doing? You know, I I might still be stuck kind of in, in those things, but it, it feels like a huge step forward for me to just be asking myself those questions, whether or not I have the answer. But as long as I'm like constantly asking, then eventually I'll get there. Oh, my God. August and Prince are so fucking cool. Absolutely stunning, folks. I'm so glad we were able to meet them on our journeys. Call to action for this one this month is a monetary one. And it relates to our interview, which is cool. So I've stated before that I'm a member of Sunrise Columbus, which is a youth-led climate justice organization. Recently, we came to a consensus-based decision to donate $1,000 to the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio, also known as NICO, for their land back campaign. NICO is an amazing organization. Um, They're trying to reclaim land in Ohio that's fertile and livable for Native peoples. We believe in this mission and we're strong supporters of the land back movement. So we started a GoFundMe where people can try and match our $1,000 donation. We're trying to raise an additional $1,000 for NICO. And you can help us do that by visiting GoFundMe.com slash Sunrise Seabus dash land back. Do it. Do it now. Donate $5 even, $50 even. Let's raise $2,000 towards this campaign. You just listened to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. We would like to take a moment to acknowledge folks and organizations who have worked on and inspired the production of this episode. Thank you to Prince Shakur at Sweet Black Prince 
August Taylor, Jordan Mays, me, Vicky Abergaliam, Marissa Twig, Sam Holland Smith, and Jacqueline Fleming, and Joshua Clark. And another shout out to the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio at NICO 1975, Maroon Arts Group at Maroon Arts Group, Jim Fia Productions for the assistance in uh, conducting this interview and producing the show today at Jim Fia Productions. So it's G Y M F E A Productions and the Creative Hour Podcast at Creative Hour Podcast, of which Prince is the main host. So go give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. Last thing. We are on Patreon. If you would like to support our efforts to produce this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash hotbotheredohio. This is all volunteer work. Send us funds. And shout out to the people who have been sending us funds. Y'all are amazing. It's not like you get too much except for like you get to listen to the podcast possibly four hours early. (laughs) Okay, bye, friends.